Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Right? Hey, we're making you be social and greet people at church again. What a crazy concept, huh? Like some of you are still sweating a little bit, right? Well, thank you for hanging with us and not running out. Um, Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in Exodus 20 this morning, and we have people coming down the aisles right now that have copies of the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible or don't have one, just raise your hand and we will get that to you. We will just hand that out. We want you to have a copy of God's Word this morning. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please keep it as our gift to you. We'd love you to take that home and just to be able to own that. So again, raise your hand high. We will get those uh, Bibles to you, but we're going to be in Exodus 20. And before we get into the text this morning, um, I want to uh, be honest. Uh, real quick, I got a couple hands over here. Ushers, I think we're, we're missing some people. A lot of people looking for them this morning. That's awesome. Um, I want to shoot straight with you this morning. Um, As you can see behind me, that there is a tank full of water, and we're going to end this morning by celebrating what God is doing in our church through baptisms. And um, I I don't want to trick anyone. I don't want to lead anyone astray. So look at me really quick. I'm going to end this message by making a strong appeal that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have not yet been baptized since coming to faith in Jesus, that today is the day that you need to take that step of obedience and follow what Christ would call you to. So here's what I'm hoping happens for some of you who might be on the fence or haven't been baptized yet as a believer. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit starts to convict a little bit and you get a little uncomfortable and, and maybe wrestle even as I'm preaching about what God might have you do in faith this morning. We're excited to see what God uh, is going to do in the life of our church this weekend. But we are in a series looking at the Ten Commandments. Last week was kind of an intro explaining why we were doing the Ten Commandments. And for the next 10 weeks, from now until basically Christmas time, we're going to take one commandment at a time. So if you missed last week and you're just starting with us this week, that's great because we're hitting the first commandment right now. And that's in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Follow along as I read. Here's what it says. It says, and God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. And here's the big idea this morning. It's this, it's that God is inviting you and me into ultimate reality. With this first commandment, God is simply setting an anchor down and he's saying what is ultimately true, what is ultimately real, the most real thing in the universe is that I am the Lord your God and there are no other gods and you shall have no gods before me. He's establishing reality. This will set the tone for the next nine commandments. And... uh, I would argue that today in our culture, in our society, the very idea of reality, if it isn't under attack, it's up for debate, isn't it? Like reality is a topic that many people can't agree on anymore. Um, Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Do you know that um, our nation is nearing record lows for their confidence in our media, whether that be conservative or liberal? We have a 36% rate uh, of people that are confident that what they receive in the news is actually what's really happening. 36%. We don't believe that what we're being told by the news is actually real. Think about that. 36%. Right? We've seen this play out in a 
ton of ways, right? COVID in the last couple of years. Were there different opinions and theories on what COVID was all about? Do you guys remember some of that? Like that was a thing, right? Uh, vaccines, elections, Russian disinformation, everything that's happening on social media. We as a country cannot agree on what is real. And I would argue that's kind of a dangerous place to be as a society when the very essence of reality people are disagreeing on based on what side of the aisle they vote for. Can I ask you a question? Is science real? Is biology real? Do we believe in the scientific method and scientific laws or do we get to decide what is real based on how we feel, right? You have the transgender, trans species, trans age. We live in a day and age where the rational conclusions of the scientific method would potentially now be classified as hate speech. Who determines what is real? Is it what I feel inside or is it something outside of myself that determines reality? All right, and then on top of that, you've got the metaverse. You've got an increasing, especially in the younger generation, like this is a, a, a real thing, church between online gaming, between online communities, between everything that's happening in social media, the majority of young people are more connected to their identity they find in online communities than they do in their actual lives. Virtual reality, online reality is quickly taking the place of physical reality. And there's this question like, what will society even look like as this continues to grow? Reality is up for debate. One of the most unintentional prophetic statements in the entire Bible is in John 18. And, and Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate. He's on trial. He's about to be put to death. And Pontius Pilate's like, why do the Jews hate you? Like, why are they so angry at you? And Jesus says, well, I came to the Jews to, to bear witness to the truth. And Pontius Pilate kind of smiles at Jesus and he says, what is truth? Like, isn't that such a great summary statement of our society in 2022? Like, what is real? What is true? And we titled this series, Timeless Truths for Truthless Times. And as we enter the chaos and think about the chaos and truthlessness, God is inviting us in the first commandment to set an anchor down in our heart. This is what's real. This is what is true. This is ultimate reality that we have a creator God who is eternal and he's good and he's inviting us into this reality. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And what God is doing here is he's telling his people where they need to start. And so the first point is a necessary place to start. We need to remember a couple things, church. So the first that God is calling to do is remember who God is. He's saying, I am the Lord, your God. And when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's not saying I'm the main God of a bunch of different little gods and just make sure you have them all in the right order. He's saying, there are no other gods. I am the Lord. And in fact, if you translate the Hebrew of what he's saying, he's saying, get anything else out of my face. He says, set nothing else before my faith, that I am true and I am sovereign and I am real and everything in the universe finds its home and focal point in the nature and character of God. He is the starting point for all things. And if he's the starting point for us, we're just getting on board with what is real. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
right? When you look outside and you're like, man, it's beautiful. Guess what the heavens are doing? They're doing what they're created to do. They're pointing us to the glory and majesty of God. Jesus tells his disciples, listen, if the people stop worshiping me, even the rocks will cry out because all of creation was designed to give praise and glory to God. Everything comes to order in life when we live in the reality of this one true God. And here's what I would argue. Even morality itself can only exist if it finds its home in an eternal authoritative morality law giver. And here's what I mean. I believe that secularism and atheism have failed spectacularly at providing a logical and coherent system of morality. If there is not an eternally good being who is our standard for morality, morality is quickly going to fall apart. Let me explain how this works. So in 2014, a a number of prominent humanists, um, they were like, we're sick of the Ten Commandments. And they were frustrated that the Bible was still kind of being used as the source of morality in our country. And they're like, we got to replace the the Ten Commandments. We need to update them. So so let's write a Ten Commandments that don't include God at all. And and they ran a a, a massive um, promotion through CNN.com. And they had people kind of crowdsource. All right, give us ten solutions, or or, or they call them the Ten Non-Commandments. Give us ideas of how we can live morally without God, and we will put these together. And they name them the Ten Non-Commandments. Let's look at them for a second. Here's the first. Be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Well, again, let me just say that even eight years on from this, I don't even think that one applies anymore in modern psychology. Four, every person has the right to control of their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, I love this one. This one cracks me up. It's treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. That sounds a little bit like do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? Like they are working so hard to make what is obviously biblical not sound biblical there. It's the same exact thing. Eight, we have a responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no one right way to live. Ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Okay, here's the problem with that list. Look at number nine again. There is no one right way to live. They're literally giving us a list of ways that we should live. And in their list, number nine blows up the entire list. (laughs) Here are these things to do. But just remember, there's there's no one right way. Like if there is no external authority, if there is no God, if we just kind of decide for ourselves what we think is best based on how we feel, there is going to be no coherent set of morals. The whole thing falls apart. Who is to say what is right or good or moral or wrong? God is saying, remember, I am creator. I am the Lord. I am the standard that which you are called to live. We need to remember that there is an ultimate God. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to remember our condition. You see it right in the text. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right, God's saying, remember where you were before I stepped in and saved you. 
You were in Egypt. You were slaves. You had no future. You were being oppressed. You were hopeless. You were powerless to change your circumstances. But then I intervened and I redeemed you and I saved you. He's saying, listen, you didn't save yourself. I stepped in. And church, you can see the obvious gospel parallels here, right? Right? What was our condition before Jesus stepped in on our behalf? Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to sin. We were hopeless. We were blind. You know, the number one way Paul describes those in the condition of not knowing Christ is dead in our trespasses, dead, can't do anything to help ourselves, and slaves. Right? And there's this picture that God, just like he freed the Israelites from slavery, has freed our souls from slavery by sending himself the perfect Passover lamb to die in our place. He's saying, remember who you were. You were my enemies and I loved you and I moved towards you and I saved you and I gave you life. And then we need to remember what God has done that God freed the Israelites. But listen, it's not just that he freed them, it's how he freed them. And he did it by sending 10 plagues to the Egyptian people, which systematically devoured and destroyed the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Every plague God sent to Egypt, it was a direct attack on one of the Egyptians' gods. And I'm not gonna go through all 10 for the sake of time, but here's a couple. Um, the Egyptians had a river god, the god of the Nile. They called her Hapi. And she was the god of life and abundance. And if you think about it, it makes sense. The Nile River is a massive source of fresh water. It gave the Egyptians life. And so this is the goddess of life and abundance. Well, what did God do? He turned the Nile, the source of life, into blood, made it a source of death. He defeated this god of life and abundance made it a symbol of death. There was Heket. This was the frog god, and this represented fertility and the ability to have children. And so what God did was he overloaded the Egyptian people with a swarm of frogs, and then he killed them all. And he says, no, no, it's not the God of frogs that gives us the ability to have life. It's me. There was Ra, the sun God. And this one was interesting because Pharaoh was the human personification of Ra, the sun God in Egyptian culture. And that was the God of the sun. Well, God blotted out the sun, made it dark to say Pharaoh has not even control over the thing he's supposed to have control over. I do. And then even with taking the firstborn son, he's saying even life itself belongs to to me. God is reminding Israel that the same God who freed them and showed grace and kindness to them also defeated their enemies and brought judgment on the house of Egypt. All right, church, give me your eyes for a second. I believe in our lives, practically, one of our biggest problems, if not the biggest problems, is you and I are so quick to forget these very three things. We wake up practically and we don't remember who God is. We don't truly remember or appreciate our condition without him. And we forget what he's done. We wake up and we believe that we are the sovereign God over our own little universe, our lives. And we believe we're in control and we believe we're strong and we believe we can figure things out. And we believe that we don't need God. We live as sovereign over ourselves. Um, so last week, last Sunday, um, it was interesting. I had a weird afternoon. So we had our fall kickoff 
and uh, services went great. They went great Saturday night. They went great here and at the 10 and at the 11. So coming home from church, I, I was tired, but I was feeling really good about how the fall launch went. I was in a good mood. And then we had um, some of our best friends over and we watched the Bears um, play uh, a football game against the San Francisco Giants. And I'm from Chicago originally. I'm a huge Chicago Bears fan. And they actually won. Like my Bears are 1-0 right now. I very rarely get to say that. So the Bears win, church is going great, I'm feeling good, I'm kicking Pastor Marty's butt in fantasy football, like everything is looking up for me. I'm enjoying my afternoon. Um, then all of a sudden I get a notification on my phone. And um, one of my favorite writers, he works for a company called The Ringer, which is a very, very, um, it's a sports um, media company. It's very, very not Christian. Um, but his name was Jonathan Charks. And he um, was a writer on football and basketball and wrote a bunch for them. And uh, he had a very, very strong Christian testimony in, in how he wrote. And uh, about a year ago, he got diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. He was 34 years old. He has a young wife, uh, a young baby. And he had written kind of about his journey with cancer. And so I'd been following that and I'd been praying for him. I even sent him a letter to reach out to try to encourage him and uh, having a great afternoon. And all of a sudden I get the notification on my phone that he passed away. And so you're, you're from this moment where like, everything's going great, life's great to this reminder, man, life is precious. And life is not guaranteed, and it's short, and there's so little that we are actually in control over, and yet, just based on how the day is going, we, we think we can be in control over everything. Like, we're so quick to forget some of the harshest realities of life. So here's the question, how do we combat this forgetfulness in our hearts? Well, here's what we do, church. We lean into the spiritual disciplines. We fast, we pray, we read God's word, we worship, we have Christian community, we rest. And it's interesting, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the church, and I remember people always being like, Cal, you need to read your Bible every day. Like I was in junior high and high school, like, Cal, you know, if you want a close walk with the Lord, you need to get into God's word. And I always was like, I don't get that. Like, I know all the stories. And then I was like, I went to Bible school. Like, I, if you tell me what's Philippians about, I'll tell you what Philippians about. Man, it's like I'm reading this Bible, but, but I'm not learning anything new. And honestly, it wasn't until my late 20s or early 30s where it clicked in my heart. It's not always about me learning something. It's simply reorienting my heart to what is real and what is true. Because you can't read the Bible and not be starkly reminded of who God is, what our condition is outside of God, and what he has done for us. We forget so quickly, so we have to lean into the spiritual disciplines so that we might remember and live in what is real. Our problem is, is we create false realities for ourselves all the time. Okay, here's the second thing I need you to know about this commandment. It's a foundational starting point. It's an anchor. This commandment is the foundation for the other nine. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but this commandment is actually different from the other nine. The other nine commandments all deal with specific actions that we are to do or not do. This one talks about the nature of the relationship, right? right? The other nine, it's like, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet, honor the Sabbath, honor your parents. There are things that we are to lean into and actions that we do to show that we love God. But this one is basically, you need to love God. It's the very foundational commandment. And if we don't get this one right, none of the others matter. Like, let me explain it to you this way. Um, how many of you in the room have children, 
Raise your hand if you have children. All right, that, that, that's most of us, okay? If I were to ask you, um, you know, do you love your son? And you're like, yeah, totally, I love my son. And if I were to ask you, well, what does that love feel like? What does it look like? Right, you wouldn't answer by be like, well, I drive him to school and I buy him cereal, and I do his laundry, you wouldn't go right into the tasks that you do. And by the way, that's part of how you love your kid is you provide for them and take care of them and serve them. But when I think about loving my son, it's like, I think Bo is awesome. And I want him to be happy and I want to see him smile and I want him to succeed in life and I want him to have a close relationship with me. And it's weird because I'm a 36-year-old man and my favorite thing to do is hang out with a nine-year-old kid, but, but I love him and he's great and he's funny and I think he's awesome and I do anything for him, right? That's the first commandment. Like I love God and I am rooted to reality and God has been so good and kind and faithful and right and he leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and I want to get near him because that's where life is found. It speaks to the nature of our relationship with him. If we don't get this one right, the others don't matter, right? We see this in Matthew 23 when Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He's like, you look good on the outside. You're doing all the actions, but your hearts are dead. They're far from God. You, there, there's nothing going on internally in your life. So here's the question, and this is what's hard about the Christian faith in many ways. How do we know if there's no other gods before God in our life? How do we know if we're getting the first one right? Because it's the very, very essence of our relationship. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk about three indicators that I'm living this commandment out. This is ultimately between you and the Lord. There's no way to externally prove it, but I think there's some good indicators that this is true in our life. Here's the first. I know I'm living this out when God alone holds my trust and my hope. When God alone holds my trust and my hope, that ultimately where our hope is, what we put our trust in, is anchored to God and nothing else primarily. And um, what you need to understand, church, the God of the Bible is an either-or God. He's like, either I am God and I am number one and I'm sovereign or I'm not. We have to choose. It's either or. We see this in Joshua 24. Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you see it? It's either or. Serve the gods of Egypt, serve the gods of the Amorites in the land that you're living, or serve the Lord. You don't get to have both. And Joshua says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's an either-or relationship, right? Jesus would echo his words when he says, you cannot serve two masters, right? You're going to love one and hate the other. Then he goes, you cannot serve, meaning putting your ultimate hope and trust in both God and money. You have to make a choice. And see, here's our problem, which was the same problem for the Israelites, is that if you were to read the rest of the Old Testament, the problem the Israelites had and the problem that we have is we want a both and relationship with God, not an either or relationship. Like if you read about the Israelites in the promised land, their issue was never that they fully rejected God. Like they were cool to worship God. They just also wanted to have the gods the Canaanites had. 
right? They're like, I don't want one singular God. Like, we'll worship you and we'll have a relationship with you. But I also kind of want to have a God of rain because I'm a farmer and if things don't rain, it gets really bad for me. So I want to have this safety net and pray that rain happens because I really need it to rain. Or they're like, man, we want to fit in with the other nations, so we don't want to just serve you alone. Give us a king, give us a person that we can serve, because that's what all the cool kids are doing in our neighborhood, right? They, they, they wanted a both and. And by the way, I believe we do this all the time as well, right? I'll serve you, God, and I'll worship you, God, but I also need to be successful. I need to have my money right. And if my money's not right, then I'm not sleeping and I'm going to be angry and grumpy and a wreck until I get things figured out, right? My trust is in you, but it's also primarily in my bank account, right? I need God, but I also need to be well-respected. I need when people look at me to be like, wow, he's got it all together or his family's got it all together. I need people to think highly of me. And when I'm in conflict in my life or if people are angry at me, I am on my face flat on the floor because I put so much of my hope and my worth in what others think of me. Right, I need God, but I also need my health. I need a small waist size. I need that beach bod. I need to look good. Right, I need God, but here's the other thing I really need. I need all of my family to get along and be a happy, sweet, perfect family. Right, and if any of you in here have families, how easy is that to get right, right? Right, it's almost like God is giving us a constant reminder in our families that we can't change people, right? But, but it's like, man, if my family's not right, or if there's conflict, I'm going to manipulate and be angry and do whatever I can to, to, to fix things because ultimately that's what I'm putting my hope in. So much of the stress and anxiety in our lives is caused by putting our hope and trust in things that can't carry that weight. And church, here's what's so cool. Um, there are things in my life where I'm like, I don't know how I would survive if something happened to them. Like I think about my wife or my kids and it's like, man, if I lost a child or if I lost a wife, like I don't know like how I would go forward. But here's the cool thing about being in a community of faith and in a church. I get a front row seat into seeing God provide and be faithful and prove that he's enough for people in the hardest circumstances life can throw at them. Diagnosed with cancer, like we did a funeral this summer for a, a, a man who'd been married to his wife for over 50 years. And if I could bring her on stage and have her speak to you right now, here's what she would say. I miss him and I love him and my heart's broken, but God is good and he's faithful and he's sovereign and he's Lord and he's with me and he's proving himself faithful. Like God is faithful. He is inviting us into what is real. I'm not just saying sweet things to try to make us cope with loss better. I'm inviting you into reality that God alone can hold our ultimate hope and trust. And when we enter into that, we're entering into what is real and safe. God alone holds my hope and trust. Here's the next one. My primary allegiance is to Christ. All right, and this is the idea that my identity first and foremost is that I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And it's interesting. So Moses receives the 10 commandments on a mountain in the wilderness. And he comes down and he's glowing. He's radiating the glory of God. Well, Jesus in his ministry, he went up on a mountain with his disciples and the same thing happened. He started radiating the glory of God. It's called the transfiguration. And then a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
And what God is doing is saying, in the same way I gave you the law, I'm now giving you Jesus. You need to listen to him. He is the greatest representation of me to the world. And part of being all in on God is you have to be all in on being a follower of Jesus. So here's the way I like to think about it, right? If you think about your life, um, there's a lot of different boxes that, that you live in, right? Like, um, Jeff, I, I'll use you as an example. You're a golfer, kind of, right? Um, my dad's got stories. Um, you're a doctor, you're a father, you're a friend, you're a small group member, you're a son, you're, you're all of these different things in our life. We all have them. I'm a dad, I'm a boss, I'm a friend, I'm a neighbor. Okay, here's the idea that all of these different boxes in our lives, they all live under this overarching banner that I'm a Christian, that I'm a follower of Christ. So I'm not just an employer, I'm a Christian employer. I'm not just a friend, I'm a Christian friend. I'm not just a neighbor, I'm a Christian neighbor. But my allegiance is to Christ and my relationship with him will dictate how those other relationships go. Right, like I'm a father, but I'm a Christian father, so I'm going to lead my children and point them to Christ and pray that their hearts would know and love their savior. Right, I'm a friend, but I'm a Christian friend. So if my friends are acting like idiots and they're walking outside of what God would have for them, I'm gonna love them enough to call them out on it, to call them to repentance, and I'm gonna just trust the Lord with how that works itself out. Like, can you honestly say as you move through the different sections of your life that all of them live under the banner of Christian? Like church, we don't get to have different gears we go through in our Christian walk. You can't be cruising in first gear throughout the week, rev it up to third gear for small group, but then when we're singing the last song in worship and you got your hand raised, now I'm in fifth gear. Right, there's a consistency that my allegiance is to Jesus. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm not ashamed. Galatians 2, 20, for I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Whatever the fallout is, I'm with him. And then here's the third one is that I'm serious in walking in obedience, that I'm serious about walking in obedience. And, and this is the idea that if we have no other God but this one God, that we want to live in a way that loves him, that serves him, and out of a love-driven obedience, we, we want to glorify him, right? And that means if there are things in my life that aren't in step with the Lord, if I have unconfessed sin in my life, church, look at me. I can't be cool with just living in that place. That I know God is good and he's faithful and he forgives. So, so when I act in selfishness or in the flesh, it's like, man, I wanna go to God and I wanna get right with him and I wanna confess it and I wanna repent. And if I need to get right with others, I will do that. But there is a sincerity to be like, I want my heart to be clean before God because I love him and he is first in my life. Right, remember last week in the big idea for this series, we said we have to be so careful to not divorce obedience from relationship. Walking in obedience, it does not save us, but it's how we practically love God. Okay, so here's what's really, really cool. Right, how do we know we're living this out? What are three good indicators, right? We, we just talked about them. Here are the three. God alone holds my trust and hope. My primary allegiance is to Christ, and I'm serious about walking in obedience. 
Do you know that like one of the primary ways we can exhibit all three of these things is through baptism? Like Jesus gave baptism to the church as a way to help us walk through all of these things. So, so now listen, baptism, it doesn't save you. You are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that he was the son of God, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, defeated death. But baptism, Jesus calls us to do to both publicly profess our allegiance to him. When we get in the tank, what we're saying is, is I belong to Christ, that he saved me, that, that, that I am his. We're professing our allegiance. We're saying he holds my hope and trust. And the other cool thing is, it's also a step of obedience. Jesus calls every follower of his in the church to get baptized as a believer. All right, now I need you to look at me right now. This is really important, right? I know we live in a Christian reformed or reformed community and many of you have been baptized as infants or, or, or as babies. And by the way, I think that's a really cool thing. We do something very similar in our church. It's gonna happen in just a few weeks. It's called baby dedications. But what I love is, is I love that if you got baptized as an infant, that means that you had a mom or a dad or parents that are like, I love my child and I want my child to grow up in the church and to know Jesus and to love the Lord. And I'm dedicating this child before the Lord and this church. Like what an amazing blessing. Okay, but you need to hear me. We also can acknowledge that that was something that your parents decided to do for you, right? Like I've never once had a three-month-old raise their hand and walk an aisle, right? Like I want to get saved, right? It was something your parents did on your behalf, and that's great. Okay, what we do here is believer's baptism, which is what we clearly see Scripture call us to, that after we have made the decision to put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus, we are the ones that pledge our allegiance. It's a decision we make. So your infant baptism, it's a great thing, but it's different than what I'm asking you to do right now. And here's what I would say. I would say that if you have not gotten baptized as a follower of Jesus after you made that decision, you're walking out of obedience or out of step with what Jesus would have for you. So I'm going to encourage you, let's handle that now. And you might be here right now, you're like, well, I wasn't planning on getting baptized this morning. Um, that's okay, you know why? Because we've done this a lot and we've thought of everything. We have people that are gonna walk you through the process. We have people that are gonna pray with you. We've got bags for you to put your clothes in. We've got new clothes for you to change into, to get dunked in. And by the way, uh, ladies, we have every type of product you would ever need to look and feel as beautiful leaving this place as you do right now. We've thought about it all. All you have to do is commit in your heart, I wanna take this step of obedience. I want to declare that Jesus is Lord in front of the family of God, in front of people who love me. Maybe you're here and you're like, I'm nervous. That's okay. Sometimes following Jesus is scary and what a cool, safe way to practice obedience to Christ in, in front of a room of people who love you and are gonna celebrate what God is doing in your life. Well, you're like, well, I want my family to be here. I want to celebrate this with the people I love who can't be here. Here's an amazing thing. Um, we are filming all of this. We will give you the video. You can share it. Don't let that be an excuse to not do what you know the Lord is calling you to right now. You know, it's interesting. Our last person we baptized last night, we baptized 10 people in our five o'clock service. The last guy came. He's like, I had no plan on getting baptized tonight. But the Lord worked in my heart. He convicted me. And I know that this is the right step that I have to take. And I know that there's some of you in here right now that that's your story. 
So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray to close our service. And then we have uh, Sammy Gurr, Pastor Craig's wife right here. Um, you can come up to the front, go up these stairs and she will direct you right to where you need to go. We're gonna sing a couple of songs and then we're going to celebrate what God is doing in the life of our church. But I'm going to ask you as clearly as I can, if you haven't made this step of obedience, um, no excuses right now, take that step. And, and what a great way as we start our fall together and, and as we start this series on walking in obedience to Christ to make this step. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this service. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we're about to witness in, in celebrating the stories of transformed lives. God, I pray for courage right now. I just pray for boldness. And God, I just uh, pray that whatever lies of the enemies people might be wrestling with right now, that you would silence those voices, that you would put those down, and that this would be a moment where um, people make a bold decision to, to follow you and walk in obedience. God, may we take this seriously. We love you. Would you bless uh, this time right now? In Jesus' name, amen.